We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Christmas miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> so ho 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 everyone. Oh, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Hi. And welcome to a holiday episode. Yay, finally. It's yeah. our holiday episode number two. It is. That's exciting. Two, maybe even three. Did we do one the first year or not? I can't remember. No, I don't remember. No, I feel like yeah. we've already done this once. Yeah, okay. Before. Yeah. Maybe like official Christmas episode. Yeah. Maybe we didn't do one at the very beginning. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, but yeah. people can tell us if we're wrong. So. Okay. So for anyone that remembers the last one, it was just a bit of a mishmash and um, us kind of rambling for a while. Yeah, so which we're, we're going to do again. Yeah, so we hope to, that we can repeat the dose. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's and, right. And we'll see what the response is. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible epidemiology puns. Yeah. So bad. there'll be plenty more of those, I'm sure. Um, Always. Yeah, so we really have no script. This no, is, no, totally we, we, we organised a time to meet and then um, that's it. <laughs> that's all we did for this episode. <laughs> yeah, so now that we're here, oh, no. <laughs> what are we, what are we, we've got a couple of ideas. We do. Yeah. I think the first thing we should do is go through our year okay. of the podcast mm-hmm. and highlight some of our guests that we've had on, ones that we've particularly liked or thought was inspirational or yeah. interesting. Or... Just stuck out for some reason. Yeah, yeah, something that we remember. Yeah. yeah. I mean, before we started this conversation, obviously I won't name any names. You were struggling to remember a few of them. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, no, I, I definitely remember every single conversation. <laughs> it's been a very busy year. I think that's a testament to the number of guests we've had on and the range of topics. And obviously we have, we're trying to do our own work in the meantime. So. That's right. And, so, and just this year... Um, we've had 17 guests on okay. our podcast, yeah. which is quite a lot. Yeah, it's and it's been really amount. varied. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, different walks of life, different professions, different experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah, different topics, obviously. So, yeah. <laughs> All related to public health. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, no, it's been, it's been really great having just the amount of guests um, willing to give their time so we can chat to them for a little bit. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really nice. It is good, and it's good that um, people seem to be interested in listening to the, the, the uh, episodes. Yeah, we, we yeah we've still got people listening. Yeah. It's so exciting. After all this time. <laughs> so that's good. And so, yeah, we. Well, I guess before we, we reflect on that, mm-hmm. obviously uh, you've recently got a new job. I do. Yeah. I do. So now not only am I trying to finish my PhD and do this podcast, I also have a full-time job. Um, so I am now working at Royal Perth Hospital and mm-hmm. looking at uh, creating a registry of hospitalizations uh, based around illicit drug use um, here in Western Australia and nationally, which is mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, so I've just started. So. No, I won't ask you too much about it because I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about. Yeah, I have no idea either. So, yeah. oh, who knows? <laughs> yeah. But no, I thought I should, should just mention it and say congratulations. Thank you. It's a, it's, you've got a job before you finished your PhD. So yes, that's right. Not everyone's in that position. And funnily enough, it's only 
it technically it's only a year contract so I'll only have this full-time job until like three or four months after I try and hand in my PhD so um yeah. hopefully they're like me enough to keep me on but we'll see what happens yeah no I'm sure I'm sure if you want to you'll be able to yes yeah. I'd say so but yeah you yeah, never know. that's excellent. Great. All right. Yeah. So do you, are there any episodes that, that stick out for you from this year? Anything that, that you want to talk about? Yeah. So I think um, I think a lot of the, the people who have listened to our podcast probably realised this when the episodes came on, but I definitely fangirled over Taran Miramathri. Okay. Um, I was a major fan. Uh, very excited to have uh, him on our podcast, particularly for two episodes as well. Mm. Um, and I was just... I was just so excited to hear his kind of life story in the first episode, all of the amazing things that he's done, and then the the real action that he's putting against climate change in the second story, in the mm-hmm. second episode. Um, yeah, all the friends that I've kind of talked to about having uh, people on our podcast, that's the one that I'm just like, oh, my God, it's so exciting. Um, yeah. So that was probably my favourite this year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, look, he's a, a name that's recognisable. And people know a lot of people know who he is. Yeah. Um, for good reason, you know, very smart um, guy with a, a good track record. And very prominent in public health. Yeah, very prominent. And he, it's no coincidence that he gets tapped on the shoulder pretty quickly whenever there's a public health emergency. Yeah, absolutely. He's one of the first people that the government looks to, even though he's not the chief health officer anymore. Mm. He's he has written some pretty high impact and influential reports and, and that sort of thing. And he's also one of the the few people, um, at least that I know of, that is both an expert in public health and also a clinician. Yeah. Um, it's a very small population that kind of fit both of those categories, and it's just. Uh, it's necessary to have, uh, yeah. particularly when you are like chief health officer. I think that's a great combination of skills to have. Yeah. So, yeah. And, it's, and it's not always uh, that you get a clinician or a public health expert that is as personable and easy mm. to talk to as Taryn is. Yeah, well. he's just, he was just so happy to talk to us about everything that he was doing and contributing to. Um, yeah. 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 He's, he's been a great supporter of the podcast and the school. Yes. Um, he's, he's on the school's advisory board or what, council or something. I forget the, the official you know title. Those things better than me. So. Um, I think he's the chair actually of, of that yeah, group, okay. whatever that group's called. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a real active participant at, at our school mm, um, and mm-hmm. obviously in our state and in other states as well. Yes. He's been all over Nationally. Australia this year. Trying yeah. to help out with various public health emergencies. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully we will get him back on again because he wanted to come talk to us about yeah. another one of his projects. Um, yeah. So, yeah, hopefully we'll make some time so to watch see him again. this space. And then hopefully he hasn't listened to this episode <laughs> so he doesn't know that I'm a massive fan girl, but that's all right. <laughs> I'll be sure to send it to him, don't worry. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Taryn was a, uh, one of our first episodes, I think, mm-hmm. this year, and then he came on later in the year. That's right. So that was good. Yeah. What about you? What's what's a standout for you? Um, so a standout this year, I've really – I'll just have a quick look at that list there yeah. because there's a few – there was a few that came to mind. Yeah. Um, I really thought that the episode that we had with Pip Brennan from the Health Consumers Council mm, was mm-hmm. a real eye-opener. And obviously – um, Margaret Doherty yeah. from Mental Health Matters 2, which was a bit earlier in the year. Um, we had a really good long chat with Margaret, um, who does outstanding work. And obviously, I need to give a shout-out to Margaret because she introduced us to Pip 
Yes. Um, yes. So that was really good. And, and other people who have been on the podcast <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting um, hearing how Margaret started as, a, I guess you'd say, a bit of an influencer for, for policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was just advocacy. so passionate about it as well. Yeah. Like, there's a real drive. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think that comes from people who've had direct experience with a certain health issue. Um, hers was through a family member who you know, has experienced some health issues and her seeing how the system was so difficult to navigate for them inspired her to try and make a difference so it was less difficult to navigate for other people, you know, mm-hmm. moving forward. And I think she's really achieved a lot in terms of making the mental health system in particular a bit more transparent um, and trying to help inform people of their rights and um, how the process works and the sorts of things they need to ask for when they find themselves in a tough spot. Yeah. You know, whether it's Because it can be really difficult to kind of figure out what you actually need to know and how to get there. So mm. it, it really is fantastic work to try and make those places more accessible where yeah. they already should be accessible. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Oh, totally. And so, and that works ongoing, you know. Margaret mm. is is a huge contributor to a lot of stuff that happens in, in the government space and the public policy space. Um, you know, when when I think the Mental Health Commission are looking for input on new policies or uh, policies that they're looking to roll out and initiatives they're looking to roll out, she's one of the people that's front and centre of those discussions. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think it's really important. Um, yeah. Yeah. So hats off to her. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some great stuff. And, yeah, maybe we'll... You know, give a chance to have a future chat with Margaret or one of Margaret's kind of colleagues, mm, you know, mm-hmm. about what's any developments that have happened. Obviously, COVID's a thing now. Yeah. Um, hasn't been a thing in WA. No, really. not really. Pretty apart, lucky. apart from having us locked up, you know, yeah. in, in the state, of course, <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah. Um, but it's about to be real for us as of February next year. It is. So yes. we're going to be in a similar boat to the rest of the country and a lot of the rest of the world. So the impact of that on mental health is going to be an unknown and potentially quite large. So, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll have to watch this space and see what happens and, you know, see what life looks like for us (laughs) moving forward, whether we're able to be in the same room doing this or whether it's going to be back back to to Zoom or Teams or whatever the choice recording is, yeah. And I I think um, that, because that episode, there was some lived experience in that one. Mm-hmm. And I think when we recorded that episode, it was a little bit of an eye-opener to say, hey, we can probably get some people on that also have lived experience, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit different to what we did last year. I think yeah. um, we didn't really tackle anything like that, um, which kind of leads me to another two episodes that I thought were really fantastic, uh, at least personally. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it was great too to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the episodes with Susie and Shane, mm-hmm. Susie being uh, someone who's living with schizophrenia and Shane um, navigating uh, drug use and the justice system, um, really eye-opening conversations, mm. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and a big uh, acknowledgement to them uh, uh, for coming on. Yeah. Because it's... Scary stuff. stuff. It's, it's really personal what we were talking about with Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Um, and those are, those are issues that are often stigmatised in the community or, and the reason they are is because they're not well understood. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, I think if the general population understood them a bit better, 
then I think less people with those types of issues would end up maybe, you know, with the justice system contact. Getting into bad situations or things that aren't helpful. I I think that if we were to treat, obviously schizophrenia is clearly a health issue, not a a crime issue, Um, but drug use is overlaps between being a criminal issue and and a health issue. And I think primarily it has to be seen as a health issue because it impacts people's health and that's why they end up committing crime, um, you know, to to pay for their drug use Mm -hmm. or because they're not in a good state of mind and they do things that um, are against the law, you know, whether, you know, whatever it might be. Um, But, yeah, I think if we took an approach of treating all of that stuff as as primarily a health issue first, then you could avoid a lot of the crime. Yes, I agree. You know, if people, the, the issue, there's lots people of issues. People are happy and healthy, they're less likely yeah. to do bad things, basically. There's, there's, yeah, that's right. There's, and there's a lot of systemic issues in yeah. that we tend to want to treat people who end up in that circumstance through the justice system once they've done something wrong rather mm. than preventing them from ending up in the justice system and reallocating those resources to the health system so that before yeah. they get to that really bad place. I mean, that's why... Like, very simply, that's why we're in public health. Yeah. Because both of us believe that primary prevention yeah. could solve a lot more than tertiary or it, it looking least, at the outcomes yeah, instead. It would be a lot less expensive in many cases yeah. and it would cause a lot more pain to the individuals themselves mm-hmm. and those around them in the community. Yeah. If they were, if their main underlying problem was addressed rather than the secondary and, and yeah. following problems that yeah, happen because of that you know, underlying problem. Yep. So, yeah, I know, look, it's pre- preaching the, to the converted, talking in the public <laughs> health world about that. But I'm the, glad that we both agree, though, because, yeah. like, <laughs> it's going to be interesting if we had different different opinions. Yeah, but. look, and there's a lot of people who have that sort of stick rather than the carrot approach, Yeah. you know, when it comes to behavioural problems mm, that may mm. be the result of, of drug use. Um, but, yeah, I think... Yeah, making more resources available because there's huge waiting lists for people who find themselves in those situations. Oh, it's crazy, and, isn't it? You know, people often people who have drug issues also have mental health issues. Yeah. And there's a thing that we call siloing, where mental health services don't want to deal with drug problems yeah. and drug services don't want to deal with people with mental health issues. So yeah. they're, they're well, that makes drugs it difficult, service. doesn't it? And it's like, well, if you've got both, you know, where, where are you meant to go? Yeah, who do you speak to? So. Mm. Yeah, anyway, it's yeah, I know it's come up in previous podcast episodes and it's been... We're well, just so passionate about it. <laughs> well documented. <laughs> um, but, yeah, those were two particularly touching and yeah. um, kind of intense episodes, but yeah. really great. Too. And I, I do think we should get more people with lived experience. I do have someone in mind, but I'm not going to say yeah. anything now because um, I don't know whether I'll be able to get them or not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, there's wheels. And there's wheels in motion to get a couple of more people on Um from similar circumstances that Shane yeah. Danny Bunbury was in, um, people that are happy to share their story mm. and, and talk about particular issues they've had. So that, that'll be something hopefully to, to look forward to in the new year. Yeah, um, It should be great. Uh, and then obviously very topical, um, Katie Atwell mm-hmm. uh, from UWA, um, big, uh, big name in the vaccination Yep. space at the moment yeah well we had to get someone that was in the vaccination space yeah like we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't do that <laughs> that's right uh, and katie's work is very much ongoing um in fact i myself have completed the survey recently about 
attitudes towards COVID-19 mandates for okay. vaccines at UWA mm. because they're trying to formulate their, va their vaccine policy uh, and whether or not they allow people on campus who haven't been vaccinated. Mm. And so mm -hmm. I filled out the survey and I know Katie yes, was part of leading that. <laughs> yeah, so they've been, I don't know how many people have responded to that survey, but it went out to all staff and, and students, I think, Yeah. Okay. from the uh, Vice-Chancellor. Must have not been checking um, my emails properly. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been working full-time, so yeah, yeah. we'll let you off. I get to check in like once a week. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so it's, yeah. And look, we do have plans to have Katie and a colleague back on. We do. Um, to talk about that case study in Italy where yeah. they had the vaccine mandates and the courts came up with a fairly bizarre judgment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. accepting, that was going to be very exciting to yeah, listen to. Well, accepted, Good story time. That's right. So they accepted evidence that has um, since been um, found to be flawed mm -hmm. that vaccines cause certain illnesses, mm -hmm. which they don't. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, we'll have a, an in-depth look at that case yeah. in Italy and see what happened to the vaccine rates there in that little part of Italy yeah, and, that's and that sort of thing. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting. And then we had a colleague at the school, Jennifer Stone, mm -hmm. on epigenetics. Uh, primarily, Jennifer works in the breast cancer space, that's right. looking at the sorts of genes and combinations of genes that might predict somebody being at a high risk of getting breast cancer. And um, it was a lot about breast density. Yes, that's, that's, that's right, yeah. Yeah, which was very interesting. Yeah, really, um, probably not a, a well-understood area, no. generally speaking. It's a very specific kind of niche area, Yeah. Um, but super important because of the consequences of things like breast cancer. Yeah, absolutely. And breast cancer, I think, is um, one of the, the cancers that can get a lot of media attention. Mm. Um, so when uh, results and kind of ideas come out of it, like breast density... Um, it can be really hard-hitting stuff, which is mm. really good and interesting and can get some really positive results. Um, so, yeah, definitely um, very interesting work done by yeah. Jennifer there. And there's there's a number of people that work with Jennifer and I'm mm. sure we'll be tapping one of them oh, on the we'll have to, right? Yeah. Next year to come and have a chat with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds about good. About their work because mm -hmm. there's other work in the cancer space, not necessarily breast cancer that happens in that team. Yeah. So, yeah, really important and uh, emerging and at the cutting edge of what we can do with, yeah. with data and bi biological, biological samples and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, really interesting. And then we probably, it would be remiss of us not to mention Professor Mike Daw. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah another one of those fangirl moments. Um, yeah. Yeah, his impact on prevention and uh, policy around smoking is just... Yeah. Uh, internationally recognised, I feel. It is, um, very much. Considering the position that Australia is in with smoking and we have some of the lowest rates, um, we could say that at least part of that is yeah. because of Mike Daw. Yeah, uh, I'd say a good a good chunk of it is yeah. um, down to the work he's done and obviously the work he's done with other people yeah. um, over the years. And interestingly, this obviously came out after Mike had been on the podcast, New Zealand is looking to phase out smoking full stop mm, tobacco good. smoking in New Zealand great so it's going to they're proposing I don't know if it's been passed yet but they're proposing that people born I think it's after 2011 yeah okay will never be allowed to buy cigarettes huh okay and they're proposing to reduce yeah reduce the number of shops that can sell tobacco um, 
And then as time goes on, people in those older age groups will then gradually be banned from buying right. and consuming tobacco as well. That'll be fascinating to see if it actually does get through. Yeah. Now, I can't remember what the end date is, but it's by a certain year. Yeah. There'll be no more tobacco right. sold in New Zealand. Uh, and it'll be illegal, huh. basically prohibited. Do we have someone we can talk to about that? I'm sure, yeah, look, there will be. We're like, well, we it, ha- oh, man, could you imagine? Oh, yeah, man. so there's calls from people who work in that space in Australia for yeah. us to adopt a similar policy. Yeah, good um, luck with that, with all, like, the freedom, <laughs> yeah, 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 but yeah. Um, so interesting. Really interesting stuff. So, yeah, we will probably seek out an expert in that next year. Yeah, um, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Do we know anyone from New Zealand? I do know some people from New Zealand. I know, I know a couple people. Yeah. But I don't think they're in the smoking they're space. They're not in the smoking space. <laughs> they're just like general friends rather than... <laughs> yeah, no, no I've, I know academics in New Zealand, but they aren't necessarily in the smoking space. But mm. I think, yeah, even within Australia, there's, I'd say there are people who are advocating for similar policies here who would, yeah. who would be across the, the minor details of that policy. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's one to, to watch um, and see what happens. Mm. Yeah. But I guess without running through the whole list, <laughs> um, we should probably move on to we should. a little bit of fun. Yes. Uh, so for people that listened to last year's uh, Christmas special, they will know that certain journals like to produce a, a Christmas um, edition. Edition, that's Christmas it. Edition. I like to think of this episode, which is obviously <laughs> very much related to what we're doing. But yeah. um, they have a, a Christmas edition where either it's competition or they just have um, uh, some of their more Christmassy uh, journal manuscripts yeah. uh, presented for that edition of the journal. Um, it's a bit silly at times. It, it is. But, but it has yeah. sometimes has quite Party a strong public messages. health message. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, so did you want to start off possibly with the garlic Vampire. Sure, absolutely. So, so the title of this one is Garlic as a Vampire Deterrent. And it, fact and it's or fiction. Fact or fiction by Evangeline Mancioris and Philip Weinstein. Yes. No, yeah, I'm not sure if this one possibly won the competition. The um, No, the second one that I'm going to be talking about okay. is the winner. This was from the Medical Journal of Australia, is that right? That's right, yeah, MJA. Yeah. Um, so obviously all medical related, so that's how we can relate it to public health. But this one uh, really talks about the impact and association of garlic in uh, the whole vampire space. So okay. as we know... Um, or at least anecdotally, um, with vampires potentially existing, all of the current stories suggest that garlic is a good uh, thing to use to deter vampires away from you. Uh, And this article goes through whether that could actually be true or not. Okay. Um, Whether it's biologically plausible. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah, whether it's plausible and whether we should... Uh, either have garlic hanging around our neck or whether we should mm-hmm. eat lots of it to try and um, keep the vampires at bay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so anyone who's a, a keen um, student of the Lost Boys <laughs> or what's the, the, the modern vampire Oh, Twilight. Twilight, yeah. <laughs> That's not um, modern anymore, but all right. <laughs> and then True Blood, you know, the TV series. It was, it was all vampire. Yeah, ladies. yeah, True Blood was vampires. Um, yeah. uh, Buffy. And Buffy, yeah, the Vampire Buffy. Slayer, of course. Um, I don't know whether those more recent ones actually reference garlic. They probably don't. I feel like it's quite an old school yeah. um, kind of thing. The the new modern vampires. Um, 
Yeah, okay. I'm not sure. I don't know whether these authors have taken that into account or yeah. they've just gone for the um, recorded information in 1897 in the Romanian city of Brisbane, which yeah. is where Dracula was from. Uh, was from, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, the, so we're at the, they're seeking to uh, um, address a gap in the modern evidence then by the sounds of it. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah it's one that's been overlooked by the Twilight series. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah a lot of modern um, television series about vampires might not have uh, uh, read their articles yeah. necessary to yeah. produce uh, produce some good facts about vampires okay. in their shows, um, particularly with Twilight with the sparkles. Yeah. That made me cringe. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so these two authors summarised the um, evidence that's available for garlic as a protective measure against vampires. Okay. Um, and they kind of go through lots of different things. So um, there's potential that vampires uh, may be aren't able to feed as effectively due to the hypotensive effects of garlic. Um, hypo being anti, anti or so, so the reduced hypertension. That's right. Yeah. So hypertension being yeah, so high, high blood pressure. Yes, yeah. excellent. Um, yes, so garlic has been shown to actually reduce both uh, your systolic and your diastolic blood pressure. Okay. So what they're kind of suggesting there is that because garlic would reduce your blood pressure. There's less flow okay. when a vampire bites you. So they can't get as much blood. They can't get as much blood. And mm. we know that they're really fast and speedy and um, they probably need a lot of energy. Yeah. So having someone with low blood pressure would really not be the most effective way to get the energy source that they need. Okay. Um, so, and garlic is something that can reduce your can blood reduce pressure. It. Okay. So... Well, that's more like a tertiary kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Rather than preventative. Like, so you still want to have to deal with the bite at that point. Did I read somewhere as well that there's the longer they take to feed, the, the greater the chance of them being discovered, interrupted, and possibly staked? Like, that's like right. With a yes. Stake so the, the, yes. So, uh, with a lower blood pressure, they take longer to feed because they're not getting the, the flow that they need. Um, so then they're standing there for longer or however long and, you know, yeah. some sneaky person could come up with a stake so, and stab them. So that's good for the person who might be next on the vampire's list but not so great for that person that's Not so current. great for But, you know, sacrifices need to be made. <laughs> <laughs> so is there something that the person who could be the first target on the vampire's list, is there a reason why they might indulge in eating garlic? Do you I'm think? sure there is. So I will just um, give you you my take on what I think. So I think there could be something to do with the odour that is emitted by garlic and the fact that it actually can come out of your pores. And if you've ever been around someone who's had garlic prawns for dinner the night before, it it does stink of garlic. And I believe, if if my understanding of this article is correct, Mm -hmm. that a lot of these, so there was a dose of, I think, one bowl of garlic, which is not one clove, but a whole bowl, oh, right, so is, a, is about 50 to 100 grams of garlic, depending that's on right. the size. Yep. And that lasts about eight hours after you've digested it. The, the odours keep coming out and they primarily come out of the neck area, these odours. Well, isn't that handy? Which is just a great coincidence. It's kind of like um, the stuff you can spray on couches for cats. Yep. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. It's like you target the areas that are... Most um, what what cats want, and you spray that, and then they'll just like go 
Yeah. 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 Yeah.
no pun intended, um, because of my Are you PhD. Sure? Are you sure it was unintended? <laughs> well, I thought of it before uh, starting to record this. I'm like, I have to say this at some point because it's just so lame. Um, but yes, for those who don't know, my PhD is partly on atrial fibrillation. So yeah. you can listen to that in one of our other okay. episodes. Um, so this caught my eye, um, and Santa Claus is a very important person, and I do believe that Santa Claus should have his own guide to make sure yeah. that he can live a healthy life um, and reduce his risk of uh, certain conditions and, and disease outcomes okay. based on the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Um, the authors of this article, Mark Mills and David Warrener, presented the idea of uh, these guidelines with an easy way to remember the guidelines for Santa Claus. And it's the use of the mnemonic aid, Santa Claus. Okay. So what Santa Claus actually stands for is a screen for atrial fibrillation, anticoagulate, normalise heart rate, treat comorbidities, antiarrhythmic drugs, cardioversion, lifestyle measures, ablation treatment, understand emotional and psychological impact, and lastly, save Santa Claus. Okay. And all of these things will help Santa Claus and other people manage their atrial fibrillation. Right, okay. So you're tapping into a rich, a really rich vein of research here. That's right, yeah. yeah. So this is something that has been uh, addressed in many guidelines internationally, mm-hmm. um, but I do think this is a fantastic way to remember all of the things um, because you just you think of Christmas and Santa Claus yeah. and it's, it's great. Um, but the idea behind these guidelines was to, to make sure that Santa Claus stays healthy. So they really directed this specifically for Santa Claus. Um, and there are some things that we need to know about Santa Claus first. Um, that's his age. So he's 1,750 years old. Okay. Age is a significant risk factor for atrial fibrillation, and it increases yeah. for every 10 years of life. Okay, so his risk must be extremely high. His risk is is very, very high. Yeah, okay. um, and because of that, he also has a significantly increased risk of stroke. And stroke is one of the um, major outcomes of atrial fibrillation once you have it, which is why... The second part of the mnemonic is anticoagulate. Mm-hmm. Anticoagulation is very important for people with atrial fibrillation because it does decrease your risk of stroke. And no one wants to have a stroke, particularly mm-hmm. around Christmas time. Um, so they give some options for Santa Claus uh, in terms of their first line choice of treatment, which is a Noel anticoagulant, um, which is also called a non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulant right but in this case it's a noel anticoagulant yeah of course rather than a noac because of this the season that's right yeah um and in particular the drug apixaban right is the one that is widely available in north pole and there's the one that um santa claus should have the one that we should have is apixaban Rather right. than a pixie band. Okay. <laughs> I don't know whether they'll be able to pick up the the uh, definition of those ones in uh, that, the recording. That's some pretty subtle. It is. Um, it's very subtle. Differences there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but luckily, we have a way of uh, figuring out uh, your your risks for all of these different outcomes, including stroke, but also including bleeding. So anticoagulation increases your risk of bleeding. Mm-hmm. We need to know the risk. 
Uh, and for Santa Claus especially, we can use the crisp Chris, Chris score, which is based off the Hasbled score. Okay. <laughs> As you can see, these authors really like their puns. Um, yeah, and it, they, yeah. I don't think they made it so it was like verbally good. <laughs> well, they, yeah, you'll have to read the article if you want to appreciate all the plot, all the puns. I think probably brush up on your cardiovascular um, terminology. Yeah, well. yeah. Oh, there's so many, so many different things you need to know. My gosh, that's why it's taking me so long to do my PhD. Um, <laughs> Anyway, this article goes through all the different things that you need to be aware of um, in patients with age fibrillation. But I do like their last comment and their last um, category of this mnemonic, and that is safe Santa Claus. And I'll read out the last bit. So it says the morbidity and mortality associated with atrial fibrillation are significant. The adequate management of atrial fibrillation in Santa Claus is pivotal to the successful delivery of presents to 2.2 billion children each Christmas. After all, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, and he's gonna he's gonna find out who's naughty or followed nice guidelines. <laughs> so be good for goodness sake. Wow. Nice guidelines are related to heart disease guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> So they did a fantastic job, I think. Mm. And it's it's all very relevant as well. Although it's all okay. Christmassy and there's lots of puns in there, yeah. it's all things that have been stated in guidelines for atrial fibrillation management, okay. which is it's great. I can yeah. see why it won the competition. Yeah, okay. Sounds like a really well thought out bit of work. Yes. Uh, and I wonder might, how long it took them to write it. It may be worth a read rather than a listen. Yes, I'd yeah. say so. With all of the puns in there, they put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. Should be appreciated with appreciated with a read through rather yeah. than a put, verbal conversation. We'll put a link in the show notes because as uh, like all good research, these are open access. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So that's the that's the new the new model, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, people applying for research grants are encouraged to apply for funding to pay for open access publishing. That's right. So that their research can be accessed. Yeah. By the community, yeah. So yeah. particularly when it's Santa Claus, and yeah, exactly. Like everyone needs to know about Santa Claus. Um, and the good thing is, it's all very relevant information. Yeah. So it actually does apply to our populations. Yeah, tremendous. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll um start with one, yeah, and we'll so what see. Do you have? Yeah, we'll see how we go. Yeah. Let's just check and see if this is still going properly. It is. Excellent. I had one of those... Sneaky phone call. Sneaky phone call from a number that if I call it back will be not... doesn't exist. Australian tax office. Australian tax office. Saying that you've evaded all your taxes. Yeah, Yeah. all the Australian border force. Saying there's a warrant out for your arrest. Yeah, police are after you. Yeah, so I'll be... Once this podcast is finished, I'll be out the door as quick as possible. Yeah, sounds good running away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, anyway, so this this study is called Giving Science the Finger. Is the second second to fourth digit ratio, 2D to 4D in brackets, a biomarker of good luck or not? And it's a cross-sectional study, and it's led by James Smoliga, and it was in the BMJ Christmas issue this year. Right. So this is from the UK. And that's the British Medical Journal. In fact, it, yeah, it's published in a British journal, but I believe it was set in the United States. So 
so using US data. And, yeah, books. and that's because I don't think the US have much of a market for Christmas editions of journals. Yeah. Terrible. Far too serious. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, sort of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, US, get to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the British are well known for their sense of humour and joviality, so <laughs> makes sense. Um, so, yeah, look, this one caught my eye because there's a lot of um, science, pseudoscience out there that claims that they can draw links between the ratio of the length of your second finger to your fourth finger. And I've I've heard that before. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it for many things. Um, uh, For example, how many kids you're going to have. I've heard it for that one. So if one finger's longer than the other, you'll have two kids and that kind of thing. And then, Um, yes, and some of the other things that have, similar to that, sort of bizarre kind of associations. Mm. You're like, how the hell are those two things related? So uh, the uh, likelihood of somebody becoming a firefighter. Oh, interesting. Um, the the likely, likelihood of having musical ability. Yep, okay. Um, showing pro-environmental consumption behaviour. <laughs> uh, having a sense of directionality. Okay. Being successful at sumo wrestling. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, being ex- obsessed with celebrities uh, or making a specific choice of Coca-Cola products from a vending machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what they did uh, is they thought, look, let's have a look here um, and see how this ratio of the second finger to the fourth finger potentially um, influences people's bone mineral content, bone mineral, mineral density and body fat percentage. And also whether, whether people have good luck as a right. separate outcome. Yeah, okay, all right. So obviously they did a lot of biological measuring, um, sampling and whatnot to work out the first one about the bone mineral density and mm-hmm. content. What was their sample? Uh, so I think it was a sample of 176. Um, let's have a look here. As you can see, I've been preparing for this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they've, these are people that... They didn't say, I don't think they said exactly um, how they selected the participants, but they just said there was a total of 176 individuals. All right. I mean, um, that's all you need to know. As long as they've got the two fingers there, then that's Yeah. It. And the, these people, okay, they were re- recruited in a university setting in a sports, yeah, okay. sports performance laboratory, included students, faculty and staff. All right. Wide range um, of people. That's good. Yeah. And they had a history of any, sorry, people who had a history of any musculoskeletal or rheumatic diseases or injuries or surgeries that influenced the hands or fingers were excluded mm-hmm. from these reasons. Okay, so we're looking at natural fingers rather yeah. than like ones with biotech Ones that have them been or, modified yeah. or, or uh, yeah, you know, changed in some way for yeah. some medical reason. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, and basically they did a, they either did a radiographic, scan mm-hmm. or they did a photocopy and apparently that influenced whether or not you know certain things were statistically significant right wow okay all right and then the, i like that two different method methodological choices yes. so yeah so they did measurements that way um and they used a, a, i think adobe photoshop yeah the program nice. they used to do the measuring Very to see good. the second finger to the fourth finger there's some lovely photographs on the article which we'll put in the in the show notes <laughs> so we'll put the link to the article um, but then as far as the outcome of good luck, of having good luck, mm-hmm. participants were asked to select five cards from a deck of playing cards and they were asked to do this twice and put them face down. Right. And then they were turned up and basically that formed a poker hand. 
Okay. And using traditional poker scores, five-card poker scores, to rank the hands, you know, whether you've got a a three of a kind or a full Mm -hmm. house or whatever, Mm -hmm. a straight, a flush, etc., they were assigned a, that each participant's hand was ranked in the list. Yeah. Yeah. And if there were, if there were two hands that were, were the same, they were given an equal rank. Yeah. And then so say say it was like two two hands that were 20th. Yeah. Then there wouldn't be a 21st. It would just go to 22nd yeah, for that okay. time. And so based on that, participants were ranked as to how lucky they were. Okay. Based on this, the poker hand that they got drawn, <laughs> you know. Um, and basically what this article is all about is just, highlighting the ridiculousness of some academic literature that's actually out there <laughs> yeah. where people go through a thing called data mining where they get all the data that they've got and they cut it up so many different ways that eventually they find a statistical association between two spuriously unrelated mm-hmm. you know, things such as the length of your fingers and being a firefighter yeah, or, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. And that basically what they found is that there's so many um, variables that can influence whether or not a statistic is significant or not, a result is significant or not, mm-hmm. that there needs, when people are doing research, they really need to plan their analysis ahead of time and state what they're going to do. And usually do this using a protocol paper. So you say, this is what we're intending to measure. This is the data we're going to have. And this is how we're going to analyse those data. So we're not going to cut it up 150 ways until we get something significant. Yeah. We are looking for a viable, like biologically plausible association. association. Mm. Um, and whether we find that or not, well, you know, that's out of our hands, quite literally in this case, um, or maybe in their hands, in depending their hands on how you want to look at it. Um, but, I knew the puns were going to come out this yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Just, it's been a long year. Yeah, <laughs> Um, but yeah, so basically, you know, these guys sh- in their results they show that there were some results that were significant at the 0.05 right. p-value level. Yeah. Um, but that those things changed depending on whether it was a photocopy image that they used or yeah. whether it was a radiographic image that influenced the results. Um, so it, it just goes to show how kind of stupid some of the <laughs> some of the findings that people have are in academic research, and that by having your plan set out ahead of time. And sticking to it. It helps to actually figure out those associations appropriately. And there needs to be a theoretical knowledge base for the for your for your hypothesis as to whether two things are actually related to each other. So you're telling me that I can't actually figure out that I'm a firefighter based on the length of my (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Or whether you've got (sighs) cancer, whether you're likely to get cancer or any of these things. (laughs) So yeah, just a little lesson in um, good science, basically, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and designing a study properly, not going, oh, that would be really interesting if we found that, um, you know, how close you got to a bird when you were 10 years old <laughs> um, could have an impact on what sort of job you do, you know. Yeah. Or, you know it's it's the of... classic example of, like, increased shark attacks. Oh, no, increased mm. uh, ice cream sales equals more shark attacks. Right. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing where it's like, obviously, they're, they're not related, but... I'm sure eventually you can find some sort of association yeah. um, depending on how many tests you do. The other thing they, they sort of state is that a lot of these, you know, supposedly novel findings that, that some researchers come out with, they've never replicated in any future studies. Mm-hmm. And so that clearly, is something that's, like, super fascinating about research, though, is, like, 
a lot of research can't be replicated, even though it's in our kind of general guidelines of being a researcher or things that we learn mm. about, like we need to make it so yeah. it can be replicated. Yeah, it's just it's the so way difficult. The way that um, people collect their sample or recruit their sample if, yeah. it's, if it's people um, is, yeah, they do it in such a way that it's not systematic, it's not done in a way that can be done by somebody else mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. Like going to a particular university and going, we want to get anyone who's in the psychology school to come and participate in this research. Exactly. Clearly that university's population in their psychology school is not necessarily going to be the same as the next universities. Yeah, definitely. And they're not going to be the same as the general population. No, you know. makes it hard. So that's, yeah, basically it's just a lesson in how to try and do good research. Oh, the joys of research. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this, what struck me about that study was just the, the existing research which they actually cite, which... Yeah. Claims to have found, you know, associations between finger ratio between your second and fourth finger and, you know, becoming it's a It's crazy that there's actual research. I know. And they, they, these citations are there and they're in real journals. Wow. <laughs> you know, making a specific choice of Coca-Cola products from a vending machine. Oh, well, that, I mean, that one just sounds like it's been sponsored by Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, why yeah, would you... Crazy. Yeah, so, yeah, the, 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 the title of that article about the Coca-Cola is, nat is naturally designed for masculinity versus femininity. Oh. Prenatal testosterone predicts male consumers' choices of gender image products. So, oh. and you, you wonder when that sort of stuff is getting published, how, who's funding that? Like, how have they yeah, got money to... Yeah, who is funding that? Well, I'm assuming it's marketing... Dollars, you it know, has it's to be. marketing top I mean, research. There is a but... fascinating story there about masculinity and femininity and products that are being sold, but yeah. I don't know how that relates to length of finger. Length of finger. They've obviously got some data on length of finger and thought, let's just chuck that in and see if we can find an association between that. Maybe it's because, like, on average, women's hands are smaller than men's hands. Uh, cool. <laughs> Whew, who knows? Um, very yeah. interesting stuff, though. Yeah, and I thought I thought I should. I've just found another reference in this list <laughs> by Colquhoun um, in 2017, which this is a serious reference: um, the reproducibility of research and the misinterpretation of p-values. Mm. And I've seen that mm -hmm. that uh, come up before. Yeah. Um, you know, talk that someone gave on reviewing peer reviewing manuscripts. You know, when you get asked to, to peer review stuff that's been submitted, yeah. a lot of people misinterpret p-values. They oh think that gosh. it's their measures of effect. Oh so no. like, this is a more significant result because the p-value is lower. Yeah. And just for people who don't know, um, when you're in um, academics, a lot of uh, research that's submitted to journals is kind of reviewed by other academics out of goodwill. Um, it's, it's kind of part of our job but not really yeah. where we sign up to journals and, and review journal articles to then be published by yeah. those journals, um, it goes on we your, don't get paid for it. It goes on your record um, when you when you're applying for grants. It's acknowledged yeah. that you that you're, you're, you're active. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, interesting. Anyway, it is interesting. Enough on the spurious <laughs> results. So the last one that I thought we might mention. Yeah, do we have, we have time? time? No, we're probably running a bit short of time actually. Yeah. So we, we might leave it there. We've got about six minutes. Yeah, <laughs> we might leave it there as far as the uh, the Christmas 
issues go. Yeah, but if people want to read more of these, as we've said, yeah. they are open access, so you can find them. If you yeah. if you Google BMJ Christmas edition yeah. 2021 or mm. any other year, you'll find these articles, and it's the same with MJA. So if you Google MJA Christmas edition, you will find these articles, yeah. and they're very obvious because a lot of them have Christmas in the title. Um, That's it. And it is written like a journal article, but... They're usually pretty entertaining, as yeah. well, at least for like major nerds like us. They're pretty entertaining, and they have been peer reviewed. Uh, That's right. And they the need B- to be accepted and yes. edited and all that. And the BMJ is is, is the other one that reliably does a Christmas issue. And they're the only two that I have kind of found consistently do that. There is the Ig Nobel Prizes as well, which we have done before. Maybe we have done. Maybe that was our our first one. I think that that was the first year. That's it. We have done three Christmas episodes. There you go. But I'm not sure if we did that as a Christmas edition or we did it before Christmas because that doesn't necessarily come out at Christmas. But, yeah. We've done three weird We've done ones. Three, three kind of tongue-in-cheek <laughs> Different ones, yeah. at There least. you go. <laughs> um, but, yes, if you Google them as well, you'll find all of the, the fun research that kind of happens. Um, yeah. There's lots to do with cats on there, so my kind of jam. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is fun. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, that, that probably brings us towards the end. I think that was a pretty yeah. successful episode that we did not plan. Yeah. <laughs> We'll see if uh, listeners agree or if yeah. they think that that's an hour, they're not going to get back. Yeah, so you yeah. can contact us to tell us that this was a great episode, but only <laughs> to tell us that it was a great episode. Um, and you can talk to us via email, yeah. meaningofhealth at outlook.com. Yeah. Um, and you can tweet us at, as well at health means what. So come chat with us. would like to know your Christmas stories or your research stories or whatever you'd like to talk to us about. Exactly. And... Yeah. Yeah, we wish everyone well for a hopefully relaxing break. Um, people in WA will be um, enjoying their last COVID bubble yeah. Christmas, I think. With a 38 degree Celsius day. Yeah, it's going to be a hot one. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, Thanks, climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, hopefully, and people listening elsewhere, we hope that you're all well. Yes. And that you have a good holiday season and a safe holiday season. And actually get to have a break. Yes, and spend time. With, break. Yeah, spend time with friends and family, and yeah. relax. And we'll look forward to speaking to you again in the new year. Sounds good. All right, Merry Christmas. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Weber, with editing, mixing, and additional music by Craig Cumming.